21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. I wanted to take a few minutes right now to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Melissa McQuaid. Melissa is from Toronto, Canada, and has been teaching internationally with her husband, Jeff, for many years. My original intention was to have Melissa on my podcast to share some of the great work she's doing with her grade three students in the classroom, in particular, her dedication to creating a classroom culture and environment that is visually rich in meaning and purpose. As I thought about how I was going to do this interview with Melissa, I couldn't help but be drawn to not only Melissa as a teacher, but also her life journey over the past several years, as it has really defined and shaped the person that she is today. Melissa's husband, Jeff Woodcock, is our elementary head of school. Although she is very supportive of Jeff's role as leader of our school, Melissa, in her own right, has carved out a very purposeful path for herself as an educator in our school. She has worked very hard to develop a unique teaching style that is focused on visible learning in the classroom in order to accommodate every one of her learners. She carefully models and co-constructs learning with her students on a regular basis And this is one of the many reasons why I feel she is such a great educator. In today's episode, you are not only going to hear about Melissa as an educator, but more importantly, you are going to hear about some very difficult yet profoundly important experiences that shaped not only her own life, but also her husband's life as well. Melissa will explain in detail both of these experiences, but it's the first experience that she talks about that specifically taught Melissa how powerful a role community can play in changing a person's life. As Melissa told this story, I really wanted to go into specific examples of how the community that she and her husband were a part of helped to be a major support for them through a very challenging and difficult time. But I got sidetracked during the discussion. It's a very powerful story, and I got sidetracked and wasn't able to dig deeper into how community specifically supported her and Jeff during this time. However, I still wanted to mention and give a shout-out to the wonderful community that they were a part of in Bonn, Germany, many years ago. Melissa's love of community continues to this day, and she is a very active force in bringing people together to celebrate connection, friendship, kindness, and joy here at our school in Saudi Arabia. I want to thank Melissa for sharing her authentic story in this episode. It's never easy to talk about things that strike so closely to the heart, but Melissa did a great job and sharing her story and everything that she has learned. So now let's get right into this episode with my friend, Melissa McQuaid. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, In today's episode, I've asked my friend and colleague, Melissa McQuaid, to be on the show. Um, Melissa, I've been trying to record with you for quite some time. You are a very busy person. Um, and uh, we can finally, you know, sit down together and have this conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for, for getting coming me to over. Us. Yeah. Um, so I guess just to give you know people a little bit of insight into this episode, I originally was going to have you on the show, uh, and we were going to it was going to be strictly an educational right. kind of conversation. 
And then we decided to kind of flip it to both personal and professional because you've got a very interesting journey, you and your husband, Jeff, who's uh, the principal of elementary here. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got common friends in mm-hmm. international education, but you do have a very interesting story. So I thought it was uh, it would be good to share that story as well as share some of your teachings. So thanks for taking the time. Why don't you give people a little bit of backstory, a little snapshot into who Melissa McQuaid is, and sure. tell us a bit about her. Okay. Um, so I'm com- I come from Toronto, Canada. Um, grew up in Toronto and uh, went to university uh, at Queen's in Kingston, Ontario. And, um, and that's where I did my undergrad degree, where I met my husband, and then where I ended up going to Teachers College. And uh, the Queen's University hosts an international recruitment fair, every year and um, I knew a lot of um, I had a lot of friends at the time that uh, were teachers and that had gone and taught internationally and it seems like a really um, interesting you know way to get into the teaching world and so when Jeff and I were both in teachers college we signed up for the fair we went and we got hired so let's just say when you say fair that's an (laughs) international school recruiting fair yes yeah yeah where uh, and there's a I think a couple held in Canada each year, but the one Melissa is talking about is an annual fair um, where Canadian teachers can go, and mm-hmm. a number of international schools from the different continents around the world right. are there, yeah. and you can easily get interviewed, right? Yeah, and and the thing that's special about the Queen's University Fair is that. Um, Teachers that are still in Teachers College can go and interview and apply for jobs, um, even though they don't actually have any, like, professional experience yet. Mm. So they kind of count your practicums and your evaluations as experience. And, um, and yeah, we were really lucky. Um, my husband, uh, he was hesitant. He didn't really want to move internationally. I kind of had to drag him kicking and screaming to hmm. the fair. Um but then we got there, and um, we had interviews with places all over the world, like Mexico and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, and and then we had an interview with this um, a director from a school in Germany, and um, Peter Murphy. Peter Murphy, yep, and uh, that's he's the one who hired us. Yeah, and that started our journey. Yeah, and and Jeff, uh, I had Jeff on the podcast last year, and he spoke specifically about the role that Peter has played in your lives and how he, Peter is really the one responsible for opening up the international world to you and that you guys have a lot of gratitude for him. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I met Peter at the, uh, the IB conference in the Hague and we had lunch together a couple days and yeah, yeah, really Mm -hmm. good guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and my friend Matt is the PYP coordinator at his school and he's got a lot of really good things to say about Peter. Yeah. So let's, Back up even more, though, from university. You said you went to Queens, but sure. I guess in, in looking at your life growing up and going into high school, did you have aspirations to be a teacher? Or if it wasn't a teacher that you wanted to be, what were some early paths that you hoped to go on after leaving high school? Hmm. Um, I think well, I'm kind of an indecisive person, so I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do early in high school, but I'm, I'm very easily inspired by people. So if I, you know, if I spend some time with somebody in a certain profession and I can see myself doing that, then, you know, I, I was, would be inspired. And for a few months or, you know, a year or two, I would think, Oh, I'm going to do that. For example, my brother, my half brother is a lawyer and I would spend some, a few weeks in the summer with him, like hanging around his law office and, and I thought, yeah, I want to do this. Like, this seems mm-hmm. like really cool work. And um, and then that kind of fizzled out. And then I I had a really great English teacher um, who thought I was a, a decent writer and, and kind of encouraged me to think about journalism. So then for a while, I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And then... And so I applied to universities um, that were that were specifically, you know, strong in journalism. And then when I got all my acceptance letters back, I picked the university that wasn't going to offer me a journalism program. Like I just changed my mind like that and kind of impetuous too. Yeah. And so I ended up going to Queens and I just did an undergrad in sociology and history. 
But I think everything happens for a reason yeah, for because sure. going to Queens led me to meeting my husband and led me to, you know, befriending people who were teachers. And then I could see myself as a teacher. And, and I wanted to be careful before I actually got in, you know, applied to teachers college. Like, could I handle this job? Cause I know it's a, it's an all consuming profession. And so I volunteered in um, a lot of low income schools and, and I just loved it. Like I loved knowing that, you know, I could make a difference in a child's life. And I know that everybody says that, but mm-hmm. there are kids out there that really don't come from great homes and, and they need that person that, yeah. you know, is there for them. And I thought it could be, it would be really worthwhile to have this as a career, Yeah, you know, to live a life where you are, uh, you know, making impacts in the lives of children. Yeah. I think that's what led me on the path because it, it, you know, sport played a big part of my life, right? And playing football in university, uh, I often say that many of my teammates either became police officers, firemen, or teachers. Mm-hmm. A good percentage of mm-hmm. them, you know. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with many of them who have devoted their lives to to those professions. Yeah. And we get together every summer, and you know, we say, "What would it have been like?" Because I almost went down the police officer route and Mm -hmm. we often wonder what it would have been like to do the other job, you know, what would it, would it have been like to be a police officer or my friend who was a, uh, who is a cop now started off as a teacher and then flipped and became a cop. So it's this idea of service to others, service to others. And I think that that is, um, you know, when you, you, when you look at the love languages, service to others is one of mine. Like I, I like to do things for other people. Like I like to bring people together. I like to, you know, show compassion to others. And so I think it's a natural fit. And also with teaching, um, especially I feel in the international teaching world, there's a lot of autonomy and like you're really allowed to be creative. Mm-hmm. And whether that's in your, in, like in your classroom space or with your lessons or with like what you do with the children and and I like that about teaching too. Is that you know you're you can be creative and you're you're yeah it's the service aspect yeah. and yeah. yeah and and I think that's the idea of teaching internationally and and whenever I have um, international teachers on my podcast, I always like to get a snapshot into kind of what they've learned and uh, it's just extraordinary when we think of Neil and I think of our own career and spending ten years in Japan and then moving to Azerbaijan and then Cambodia and and then uh, China and now Saudi Arabia, the people you meet, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. And I said earlier that we have, we have a, a few common friends, but Marina Geisen is, mm-hmm. is one of them. And yeah. I know she was a mentor to Jeff and she was uh, our mentor as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess just speak a little bit about um, why international education is something to be considered if you're a teacher listening to this and you've never left your home province and there's nothing wrong with that, but why would it be worth it for a teacher to consider moving international? I feel like there's just so many opportunities to grow. Um, And like, like I think about the PD opportunities I've had and, and the people that I've worked with and like Marina, for example. So working with Marina, you're not just getting Marina, but you're getting all of the experiences that have led Marina to who she is Mm -hmm. and all the best practices that she's picked up. And you're getting all of that from working with that person. And I I feel like there's so many people that we work with that have so many strengths Mm -hmm. and you're always drawing from those people. And, and like I said, um, what I really appreciate teaching internationally is, um, I guess like the, the flexibility and the autonomy that I have in my daily, you know, teaching practice and um, the, especially in our school, I love the coaching that we have, that mm-hmm. the opportunities that that provides. I love the collaboration and the, the team aspect. Um, uh, I think that when I, sometimes when I talk to um, teachers that are friends and even family from home, one of their, um, one of their struggles is like with resources and, and also with like, um, working with colleagues who aren't motivated or who are protected by a union and Mm -hmm. who don't want to change and grow. And I, I feel like everybody that we work with 
is there because they want to be there mm-hmm. and because they, they want to make change and because they, you know, want want to grow and like they never stop learning. And I and I often wonder if in like the public school system in Canada, if that's the case with everybody there, yeah. you know, or if some people are just working um, their years yeah. to retire, to re- and, retire. Yeah. and and I think that that's the shift is that I don't think te- teachers in the international world are working their years to make their pension. They're working their years because they love to teach and they love the opportunities that, you know, working internationally provides. Yeah. 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 So when you moved to Germany, Mm -hmm. um, you were at Bonn International School, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So speak a little bit about those first years and kind of what you, what you learned in those first few years. Oh, (laughs) the, well, I remember like, in our interview with Peter, him saying, so what do you know about the PYP? And we were like, the PY what? Like, we had no idea what he was talking about. So he handed us some some literature, and we, like, poured through it that night, and then we were supposed to have our second interview the next day. So, you know, very quickly we understood that it was, like, an international curriculum, but we didn't, other than that, we didn't know much about it. And, and I remember our first year... Um, in Germany just being like so overwhelming like it was so different than the Canadian curriculum that we had just done our practicums in and, and had grown up in mm-hmm. um, you know the whole uh, idea of inquiry and that approach and the concepts and the transdisciplinary um, themes and the mm-hmm. ATLs and like all of that was just so new and it was it was overwhelming for sure um, but we both work really hard. So we were there to like six, seven o'clock each night, like just working our tails off. And like I said, we worked with good people. Mm-hmm. So we learned a lot from the people that were around us. And, you know, I think the when you first start teaching, those early years are so formative. Like they, they kind of shape you into the teacher that you will become. Yeah. And I was also really lucky in Teachers College to work with some really great teachers um, who are really strong literacy teachers. And I feel like what I learned from them has carried forward with me as well, even now. Mm-hmm. So um, although it was overwhelming, I feel like we were supported and, and we were able to like really develop a strong understanding of the PYP. And then that yeah. has kind of like moved along with us. Yeah. I remember, and I, I told Neil this story years ago, but when I was hired at my, my first PYP school in Hiroshima, mm-hmm. um, I was quite raw. I had been teaching English, and then I suddenly got this job at the international school. And uh, I taught English in the school, in the after-school program. Mm-hmm. So when I first started the school, I wasn't a part of the, the day school, the PYP. But I was hired, and I taught evenings, so the school was quiet. It was in between um, my English classes and I just wandered the halls, and I remember feeling completely overwhelmed and intimidated and leaning against the glass in one of the grade five classrooms, looking in, and I could see all the PYP jargon up on mm-hmm. the wall. And I was like, I have no idea what this PYP is all about. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like completely intimidated. Yeah. And I remember um, that that initial start. And unfortunately, you know, I, I, I worked with some good people, but I didn't really have mentors. Mm-hmm that could really guide me through those first initial years. So I had to kind of flounder about and Mm -hmm. figure out my my own way. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't really until I um, went to Azerbaijan that I was uh, working under David Mm Tichler. David Tichler was my first real PYP mentor. Wow. Yeah. Now you work with him again? Yeah, now I work with him again. Um, But he was the first one that really opened my eyes to the possibilities that exist. And that just boom, just created the fire in me. And from then it's been burning brightly. I just love yeah, working yeah. in the PYP. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that um, obviously I have a lot of guests on my show who have had to really overcome obstacles and hardship. Mm-hmm. And I know early on when we first met here, um, I heard about your story. You mm-hmm. told me about it. And I think what it, what it, uh, symbolizes or represents is the power of community, mm-hmm. right? So I asked you if you'd be willing to kind of share that story, and you you agreed to share it. So yeah. So why don't you uh, take people through? Okay. Through that time. Um. So, so our first year in Bonn, we 
just, you know, figuring things out, kind of floundering a bit, but mm-hmm. also working really hard. And then in our second year, um, we got pregnant and that was a surprise. Um, but it was, you know, exciting. I, I, I had all these things that I had imagined I was going to do, like I was going to start my master's and I was going to try to become the team leader. And then, and then I got pregnant. So all of those things kind of popped went on pause, went on hold. And so, um, I had a really eat like easy pregnancy. I was never sick. I was, you know, super healthy. I walked and ran on the Rhine, you know, it was, it was a good pregnancy. And then, um, the birth was not, um, it was not easy. Um, I was in labor for, I'd say over 20 hours and I had this like mindset that I really wanted to have a natural, a natural birth. And, um, I don't know, as the birth was progressing and I would, I, I was progressing, but, um, you know, the pain was really bad. And so I ended up having an epidural. And then we got to this point, um, where Jeff asked me, do you want it? Do you think that maybe we should have a C-section? And we were in this, um, like kind of holistic natural birthing clinic mm-hmm. where they had like the showers and the tubs and, and all of these things. And, um, and I said like, no, like we're, you know, we're here. Let's try to do this. Like, let's try to stay true to what we imagined this birth was going to be like. And then the doctor came in to check. And then all of a sudden, um, that he looked really worried and a bunch of other doctors came in and they said, we're going to have to do an emergency C-section. So they rushed me to the OR and he couldn't come and they put me under and then, you know, they did the C-section and they took Lily. And, um, but then there were some complications because you, I guess usually, um, when you have a baby, your uterus is kind of like the contractions are your uterus contracting. Mm -hmm. And I think that because, Lily was a big baby, and I'm relatively I'm considered petite. Um, my my uterus was just exhausted after mm-hmm. all of that late, all of the hours of labor, and so it stopped contracting, and I started to hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. And um, because I was so young, I was 27 at the time. The doctors were trying to stop the hemorrhaging while also, you know, saving the uterus, but they couldn't, so they had to remove it. And yeah. So it was it was a really tough time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in, in going through that, though, some of the lessons that you, you learned through your recovery, because it was quite serious what you went through. And take us through some of the things that you learned in your recovery that are important to you. Um, well, um when I came out of a coma, I was in a coma for like three days. When I came out of a coma, the the doctor came in and in Germany, they're really direct. So right away, they wanted me to know that I could no longer have children. So they told me that right away. Mm-hmm. And I was so confused. Like I was coming out of a three-day coma and I thought that they were telling me you had a C-section. And I couldn't understand what they were saying. And then finally it clicked that, oh, my God, I, I can't ever have children again. And mm-hmm. it was really hard for me to um, to take, especially being so young. And it's yeah. and what happened is so rare. Like they told me, you know, this is like a one out of 400,000 case. Like mm-hmm. this is so rare. We don't know what went wrong. We don't know why you hemorrhaged. But you, you lost over 50% of your your blood in your body Mm -hmm. and so they were giving me transfusions and I guess at some point you reach this point in your body where you're you can't have more transfusion blood than you have your own blood um because it won't clot and and the platelets are are not balanced so um they had to stop and that's when they decided to give me the hysterectomy so I guess so needless to say I was devastated um but right away, I thought to myself, okay, we'll wait. So this, you gave me a hysterectomy. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so they explained that it was a partial hysterectomy. They had taken out my uterus, but that I still had my ovaries. And that, I, you know, so, and, and they, they termed it, they said, because you still have your ovaries, you can still live like a normal life because your, your hormones won't be affected. And so I was like, okay, great. 
but that means that I can still potentially have another baby because mm-hmm. I, you know, have my own ovaries and I producing eggs still. So um, right away, like probably a day or two after my coma, I, I started researching my options and, and I knew that I would have another baby. And, and that kind of speaks volumes. Neil and I do a lot of work with um, the idea of mindset and, yeah. you know, kind of like creating, um, kind of creating the future that you desire yeah. through visualization yeah. and through uh, just belief, yeah. you know, steadfast yeah. belief in, yeah. in, in what you hope to achieve. And that's played a very important part in our lives. So that's the one thing Marina said about you is that you're very strong-willed in the sense that you will you will set an intention and and you will you will hold that intention close yeah and you will make it happen yeah and i think probably the fact that you took that mindset on right away mm-hmm. had to be healing to your body and to your mind and to yeah. your spirit yeah so i didn't know at the time then how i would do it um i didn't know if i'd adopt or if i'd you know consider surrogacy or I didn't know what the journey would be like, but I knew that it would happen and I wouldn't give up until we had another baby. Mm -hmm. And, and that, you know, and not because, you know, I had this, yeah, I did have this image of what our family would be, but I also wanted it for Lily. Like I wanted her to have a sibling and, and that just became stronger and stronger as she got older and older. Like I, you know, she would probably would have been a perfectly happy only child, but I wanted that for her. So tell the listeners the next couple of years what happened. Okay, so... Um, in regards well, to Luke and Macy. Oh, with Luke and Macy. So, uh, <laughs> um, so we stayed in Germany for a total of four years. So Lily was born at the, at the beginning of our third year in Germany. And in that third year in Germany, um, Peter Murphy left... And, and I want to come back to that, that sure. time because that yeah. was a really important time, like the, the, the way people came together to help us. Um, but Peter Murphy left and he went to Vienna and then Steve Middlebrook came and he became our new director. And Steve Middlebrook had just, you know, he knew our story. He knew what had happened to us and, and how hard that was. And, um, and he was coming from here, from Kaust. He had yeah. helped set up Kaust yeah. um, nine years ago when it was just beginning. And so he came to Bonn, and he was such a lovely guy, and he's so easy to talk to and um, just wonderful. And he, he was there with his wife. And and uh, and so sometimes we'd go up for dinner with him, and we'd chat, and, and he would talk about and he, you know, cows and you'd say, like, would you ever consider moving to Saudi Arabia? There's this really great community that's beginning on the Red Sea with this university, and it's the first university in Saudi Arabia to be co-ed, and this is the king's vision, and kind of, like, explained the community. And um, it just, it seemed like a good idea. Mm-hmm. I, I can't explain it other than that. Like, I trusted him, mm-hmm. and I trusted that he wouldn't send a young family of three to a place that wasn't, you know, promising. Yes. And so um, we interviewed. We were ready to leave Germany um, because by this point we knew that, well, I knew that the path that I wanted to take with um, having another child was to um, have a surrogate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had done all the tests and I knew that it, it could happen. And because I was young, I was probably 28 or 29 at that time, like my eggs were only, you know, they're as good as they were going to be. And mm-hmm. it was that we had good chances. Um, and so we decided um, that we needed to move because we wanted, um, you know, a new experience, but also because we wanted to be able to pursue this other goal of right. having another um, baby. And in Germany, they don't recognize surrogacy. So there was no, there was not going to be any way for us to continue living there and to try to have a baby because mm. the baby, you know, wouldn't be recognized. And, right. um, yeah. So we decided to move to Kaust. And so we moved to Kaust and, um, began our journey here. 
And at the same time, you know, I'm still researching surrogacy, figuring out what we're going to do. And I'd heard about this doctor in India, uh, Dr. Naina Patel, who actually had, over the years, me not knowing this, but had become quite famous for her work with surrogates in India. And um, one of my good friends um, that I had in, in Germany had kind of told me about her. We, you know, her baby, her name's Jeanette. And um, she lived in the apartment below us, and her husband worked at Bonn with uh, with us. And um, so Jeanette and I, our babies, Lily and Charlotte, were born around the same time. So we were off together on maternity leave, and we go for these walks. And one day Jeanette said, you know, have you ever considered surrogacy? I just saw this um, doctor on Oprah who's from India, and um, she runs a surrogacy clinic. And she, you know, is helping all of these foreign couples that can't conceive that have medical you know issues or have had some trauma and can't conceive and um you know she's helping them have babies with the help of indian surrogates and so the more i looked into it the more i thought that this is what i wanted to do because mm-hmm. um surrogacy in india was life-changing for the women who were surrogates like mm-hmm. the money that they um that they made or earned from carrying a baby was life-changing. They would yeah. go back to school. They would build homes. They would send their children to school. And so for me, it was it was a perfect, you know, opportunity because I, whoever the surrogate was going to be for me, she was going to change my life if it all worked out. And I was going to change her life. And that just seemed to be a perfect fit. A perfect fit. Mm-hmm. And so when we moved to Kaust, we were also thinking about Okay, it's closer to India, so we'll we'll have more opportunities to fly over mm-hmm. to to go through IVF to try to have this mm-hmm. baby. And and that process from start to finish was um, well. Uh, the first time, so we tried twice. The first time um, we went in June uh, of two thousand thirteen, and uh, so school ended. We went to India we tried I was successful our surrogate got pregnant I was so happy and then she miscarried so that was really hard mm-hmm. and it was it was after that that I started thinking do I is this is this like the universe telling me that this is we're just meant to have Lily like mm-hmm. just that's it and then Jeff Jeff said no we're gonna try one more time because I know you really want this and so, and then he said, you know, st- statistically, I've looked into this, and statistically, based on our ages and the chances and blah, 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 we could have twins. And, <laughs> and, Lo and um, behold. And so we went back in December. We spent Christmas in India in a tiny little hotel room, me going through IVF, and we made a Christmas tree out of car- like cardboard boxes and, you know, construction paper. And we had a Christmas with India or with Lily in India. And then... Um, Four weeks later, in January 2014, we got an email saying, congratulations, your surrogate's pregnant. And then, and, 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 the, and the HGC, HCG, I can't mm-hmm. remember, levels were really high. So, and in the first pregnancy with the other surrogate, they had not been high. So we thought, okay, that's great news. They're so high. So it's a strong pregnancy. And then on Valentine's Day, the next month, we got an email saying, congratulations, you're expecting twins. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So it was wonderful news. It was like wonderful and completely scary and overwhelming at the same time because we thought, holy cow, like twins. Like yeah. we, we knew that there was a chance, but, you know, and Jeff said, I told you so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so. They, they were born. And so they were born um, on August 3rd, 2014. They were uh, born at 32 weeks. Um, So earlier than we expected, but, you know, they were both about five pounds. So for preemie twins, that's Mm -hmm. not bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent two months in India with them. Um, I spent my mat leave time in India just going through, like, you know, Luke was in... So, yeah, Luke was... um, born with a bit of a stomach infection so he was in um, the NICU for about two weeks and Macy was a little fighter from the start so she was just 
with me. Yeah. And um, I stayed in the hospital for probably the whole two weeks while Luke was in NICU. And then we moved into a, into a nice hotel while we waited for their, you know, passports and citizenship documents from Canada. And, yeah. um, and there was lots of precedent already around surrogacy in Canada or surrogacy in India and a relationship with Canada. So, um, you know, even though it was two months that I spent there with them on my own and my mom, um, it was worth it. Yeah. Like there, it, it wasn't as hard as it could be. There were other couples there from the UK um, that were really struggling. There was one couple that had been there for a year because their the surrogacy wasn't being recognized. Right. Yeah. So we, and then a year later, well, a year and a half later, um, India stopped allowing foreign couples to come into oh, India. Wow. So the for, window so of opportunity window was there, and, and so I feel like. Worked. It all happened when it was supposed to happen. And the universe yeah. unfolded as it as yeah. it should as you intended it to. Yeah. Right. And so now I'm this crazy busy mom of three, and who can barely get to a podcast with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess in looking back, and and it, it is a powerful story because going back to the the intention that you had set after you know, what you went through with your, your first delivery that you set the intention to have more children and you had that steadfast belief that it was going to happen and it yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, I guess in, in looking at what you learned, so you without question became a stronger person as a result of that experience. Yeah. Um, how did that kind of shape you as a teacher? Do you think, can you draw any kind of connections to, you know, maybe becoming more empathetic or compassionate oh, or, or sure. whatever. So just talk about some of the lessons you learned through the experience that made you into the teacher that you are. Yeah. I, what well, I, you know, definitely, I think it made me have more empathy for people, for people's struggles, mm-hmm. um, for the whole idea that you don't know what people are going through. And mm-hmm. that includes children. Like you don't know how their day started. You don't know what's going on at home. Um, just that, you know, with all of us, there's like, there's what we put out to the surface and then there's what's within. And I think that that applies to kids as well. And some kids are struggling with things that we have no idea about. So we need to be compassionate and we need to be open and we need to listen and we need to look for those, you know, those clues or those signals that, you know, they're they're struggling with something. And, you know, for children, it could be very... It, it much more simpler than what I was struggling with. But I think that going through what I did, it made me really aware of, of people's struggles. And I think, you know, especially people with infertility, um, mm. it was really hard for me for a long time to hear that somebody was pregnant, Yeah, you know, or, but yeah, my strategy was to, so whenever a friend would get pregnant, I would host the baby shower because mm-hmm. it would be so hard for me. Yeah. But I thought, if I can push through this and, you know, show my happiness and, you know. And support. And support, then, you know, that, that'll that make, um, I don't know, maybe the, the universe will recognize give that. Back. Or give back to yeah. me or, yeah. Yeah. And, so. and like what you're saying about, uh, you know, the empathy and compassion piece with, you know, Neela's the first one that she, share this quote with me and I might butcher it, but something to the effect, be kind to others because you don't know what struggles they're experiencing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and we don't know. Yeah. You know, and our fellow colleagues, we don't know. Exactly. You know, and we can work with somebody day in and day out, but we don't know and they don't share. Yeah. So we don't know the struggles that they're actually going yeah. through. So it's just that idea of um, constant kindness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I know community is very important to you and you said you like to bring people together and, and how do you feel that you, you create a sense of community in your classroom or like, how do you set up your classroom in a way that kind of taps into that feeling of community? Right. Um, well, I think that one important aspect is morning meeting. Um, every day we start day in the classroom with greeting each other with um, sharing anything that's, you know, happening in our lives, and and me included, um, sharing, like, tough things or sharing um, exciting things or sharing, you know, news about family and 
And so that's kind of like opened up our sense of community in the classroom. Um, we also try to do like team building games and um, like, did you know? And, and just, and that's early on in the year, but like trying to find out more about who we are and what our strengths are and what our challenges are. And um, we talked a lot this year about like the, you know, the learning pit and that mistakes are okay. And, mm-hmm. and just creating like a community of trust in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important for me to be, you know, modeling kindness Mm -hmm. and happiness and greeting students at the door each day and checking in with students and um, being humorous and light with them and and knowing that, you know, I'm somebody they can joke with or somebody that they can talk to if they're upset. And I think it's just little, it's, it's modeling and setting up like certain routines in the classroom that help build a sense of community. Yeah, and that extends over to the work that you do with the Sunshine Club, right? So yeah. it's that idea. Just wanted you to speak a little bit about Sunshine Club here at GES and mm-hmm. and uh, what it's about. Okay. So um, at GES, we have the Sunshine Committee, which is pretty much like a social committee. Um, but our aim is kind of to bring people together um, at school, and and so we one of our initiatives is that every month we host like a surprise food event we call it a snack attack and uh so you never know when it's coming and you never know what it's going to be about but we plan it in advance and we try to plan it around like you know when we come back from a break or when teachers might be stressed because of report card writing or like there's been a lot on our plates and and it's just like a nice um a venue to we, you know we cater it we provide music and usually it's just over recess so it's like 20 minutes long but people come and they get a chance to like talk to somebody connect with somebody that they you know might not have been able to because our school's so big and we're yeah. all so busy and um i started doing that about three years ago and we've gotten really good feedback from it because in in previous years what the sunshine committee was doing was hosting events outside of school um, like, you know, come and bowl and, or go on like a snorkel trip. And, and the problem with that was that, you know, a lot of people here have young families and they're just so busy after school, yeah. you know, they're tending to their kids or um, they've got other commitments and, and so they weren't well attended. And now, you know, with the snack attack, for example, people come and they talk and they connect and they get food. And I always have this, you know, idea that food brings people together um, and, and I think it does. Absolutely. And, um, and so, you know, we, we do that. We, we recognize, we, we host a big winter dinner event, um, the winter gala. We, um, we do a big leaver, leavers thing at the end of the year. And I, I don't know, cause I've only worked at two international schools, but I think that what we do for leavers is really special. We, yeah. you know, we create, we have some, um, some great teachers that are great with tech and they create a video of all the levers, which is like often hilarious. And um, we recognize the levers in different ways. And um, I think that, you know, we do a lot to promote community and a sense of like culture and in our school. And, um, you know, I've gotten really good feedback from it. I'm sure that there's always, you know, more that we could be doing, but for me, it's important because the first three years that we were here, I wasn't on the Sunshine Committee. And sometimes I felt like a little bit disconnected from people. So mm-hmm. I guess when I joined Sunshine, my aim was to for, like create more of a sense of community and find opportunities to bring people together. and um, Which is very important in a school. I think, yeah, yeah. I think it is. And, yeah. um, and, I, and I really enjoy it. Um, and, you know, when, when I'm at those sunshine events, a lot of work goes into them. But often I just like to stand back and watch people interact yeah. and, and see that people are connecting. And that makes me happy. Yeah. So Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, that's like I said, I think it's important. And the whole bonding thing. And I know we have big grade level teams. You know, we've got seven, eight teachers yeah. per grade level. Yeah. And, you know, so they're used to being together during during the week and meetings. But... You know, for everybody else to come together, it, it serves a, a bigger purpose than just the act itself, you know. Yeah. Um, 
So this might be a nice time to segue into the speed round that I told you about the four questions. All right. Yeah. So what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to give you four questions. You're going to answer them uh, as succinctly as you can, not giving a lot of ex extra information. But after you answer the four, we'll return back to one that you want to speak to in greater detail. And you can just kind of share one last piece of advice. <coughs> so the first question is um, the greatest. Are you ready for the speed round? I think so. Ding, ding. Ding, ding. The greatest book that uh, I guess the best book that you've read that has really impacted you okay um, I think that that would be um, Eat Pray Love mm -hmm. which I read I think you know in my dark time when I had just had Lily and was still kind of reeling from the fact that I this really traumatic almost well, I almost died mm -hmm. so um You know, I, I think I was just looking for hope mm -hmm. and, you know, looking for, you know, a story that kind of could inspire me. And, and that one did. Um, it's, because, a, it's a great book. Yeah. The author, you know, was in a dark place as well and um, went on this journey and, you know. Around the, around the world yeah. to, to yeah. Italy to Bali yeah and just like the lessons that she learned in those places and yeah um, and how that kind of changed her and, and then she I don't found know, true I, love yeah she found true love and you know I already had my true love but I I I, I really just connected with that story and and that idea of you know finding yourself and that it's a life is a journey and like these Traumatic things happen, but they can be overcome. For sure. Yeah. And, and you can learn from yeah. them. Um, next question. Uh, complete the sentence. My biggest fear is... Losing one of my kids. Yeah. I've had many guests say that. Um, number three. The greatest lesson that your mom ever taught you. Um, I think working hard. Okay. Just like, even if you don't have the talent, working hard you know, can put you in the same spot as somebody with talent. Yeah. Um, and to be grateful for what I have. Yeah. And then also that life is better if you see the humor in things, if you make light of things. If for you, sure. You know, and I, and I really try to do that um, in my everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question. I know when I told you this, you, you struggled a little bit with, with um, coming up with an answer, and then I think you did, but... If somebody was to write a book about you at the end of your career, what would the title of the book be? Okay. I think it would be, Can't is not in my vocabulary. Okay. So now, thinking back on those four questions, so the best book you've ever read, um, your biggest fear, the best lesson your mother ever taught you, and the title of the book, pick pick one area and just speak to it to a deeper level and um, just offer the listeners one piece of insight or advice. Hmm. think time is okay <laughs> well I think maybe the book title like can't is not in my vocabulary I think that there are so many things that in life that we think we can't do but but really you can it's just you have to just build put the steps in place to get to that you know goal mm -hmm. or that you know I think about um, one of my One of my struggles after having Lily was I was really, like, let down by my body. I just thought, like, why couldn't I have done that? Like, I'm, I was healthy. I was in good shape. Why did that happen to me? You know, mm -hmm. why me? And then, and I was really down on myself about that. And then I think that I gave myself all of these challenges after, all these physical challenges after having Lily. And I said, okay, I'm going to show myself that I, that my body can do what I want it to do and I signed up to run a half marathon and then I ran it and I ran it in a good time and and that was only 11 months after having Lily so then I said well was that just luck or could I do that again and so then I did it again a year later mm -hmm. and then I said to myself okay well what else do you think you can't do and then I said I thought well I don't think I could climb a mountain So I organized a trip to Kilimanjaro to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and I really didn't think I could do it, but I did it. Mm -hmm. So all of these times that I've thought, you can't, when I've put the steps in place, I have. 
So, which is which is great advice, and uh, one of our favorite podcasts is uh, Finding Mastery by a, a sports psychologist, Michael Gervais, in the U.S. And he's got on incredible guests. Uh, it's just incredible their stories. Every single episode is inspiring. Kind of like this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of like this one. I, I hope this one. <laughs> um, and um, there was the one guest. Her her name is uh, Coach Val, and she's the coach of the um, UCLA gymnastics uh, university. Uh, UCLA gymnastics female gymnastics team. Mm-hmm. They won six national titles. Uh, she's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And her mindset is so not about the skills of gymnastics, but more the life skills of, of coaching her athletes. Mm-hmm. And she made it very clear, like her mother played such a powerful role in her life. And she said from the time her mom, uh, from the time she was like 10 or 11 years old or eight, whatever it was, her mom said, failure is not a, a word you will ever understand. It's it's not a word you'll ever use in, mm-hmm. in your life. There is no such thing as failure. So she said, I literally grew up not knowing what failure meant. Mm-hmm. So you can look at defeats in sport competitions or in gymnastics falling down during a routine as failure, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's moments of learning yeah. and dissecting it and saying, yeah. well, why did it happen? What do I need to do? Yeah. So it doesn't happen again. So when you say I can't, I really think of that powerful podcast with Coach Val where she said it's just, and she's not being arrogant. She's not being conceited or, or mm-hmm. cocky in any way. She just she just made it very clear that failure is not a word that she'll ever use or allow any of her athletes to ever use. Yeah. And a lot of them that walk out of the program say that was the biggest impact on their life. Yeah. To learn that concept. Nice. So. So, I totally agree with that. Yeah, so yeah. great, great way to uh, end the podcast. Thanks for sharing You're your welcome. authentic self and your story. And I think there are a lot of women that have gone through, you know, hardship like that. And it's not easy for them to talk about, but there's always lessons learned by sharing these things, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, where can people find you on social? Um, well, I guess Twitter. And your Twitter and handle? McQuaid 2. Okay. Um, I don't know who Melissa McQuaid one is, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, follow her. <laughs> yeah. So Melissa McQuaid too. Um, and then we can direct people to our school's website as well. Yeah. So well, Melissa, thanks a lot for being on the show. You're welcome. Okay. Yeah, thanks Every- for having me. Yeah. Everybody, thank you for listening to my episode with Melissa McQuaid. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Now it's time. for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassley. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.